Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through uh, 21. If you're physically able, will you stand with me as we read God's precious word? Philippians chapter 3, 17 through 21. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now even tell you weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed into his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able, even to subdue things, all, all things to himself. All right, that's the word of the living God. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. Enemies of the cross. <clears throat> we've, we've, we've developed this theme about the enemies of the cross uh, for the past several weeks now. And we've landed at a place in which, again, I want to mention that we might not be positional enemies of the cross, but in a sense, in our church culture, we've become practical enemies of the cross. What I mean by that is that every believer, every genuine believer has repented toward God and put their faith in Jesus and trust solely in His work, not only to save them, but to keep them and to bring to fruition that which He started. The Bible says, He who began a good work in you is going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's, that's positional friendship with the cross. But in representing Christ and being the salt and light that we've been called to be, we're almost apologetic over the cross. And in so doing that, we've become, uh, I'm afraid, slipped into a, a place where we're preaching half the gospel. And we've, we've so focused in on the fact that Jesus died on the cross, and we should, but before we do that, and God's call for us to believe in His Son, to put faith in His Son, we've got to be honest with people and tell them that the reason the cross exists is because of the justice of God. That if you take away this part of the character and nature of God and just talk about this part, you've got half the gospel. And half the gospel is no gospel at all. And that's where our enemy of the cross issue comes in. And we pivot from there. And one of the, one of the things that we've done is that we've misinterpreted and misunderstood and, and not really understood the character and nature of the gospel itself. We've embraced a man-centered gospel that's almost therapeutic in nature. What I mean by that is that Jesus came and died on the cross to make your life better. You know, there's a hole in your heart, and it's a God-shaped hole, and Jesus is here to fill it. Or that you lack purpose, and because you lack purpose, Jesus came and died brutally on the cross in sacrifice so that you can now have purpose. And so we've made the gospel so man-centered, and the gospel is God-centered. It flows from the character and nature of God. It doesn't lift itself from the character and nature of men. The character and nature of God exposes men's need for the gospel. But it is not where the starting point is. It starts with the character and nature of God. And the Bible teaches in Isaiah 45, 21 that God is a just God and He's also a Savior. Hallelujah for that. His salvation makes no sense. His salvation is grossly underappreciated. And, the, and the, the, the death of His dear Son on the cross is really not understood unless it's understood in the context of His justice. God's a just God. He's holy. He is totally separate from sin. Not only can He not look upon sin, He can't sin, and it's against His character and nature. 
but yet man's a sinner. And what some of this flows around our misunderstanding of the law, of the law. And so the subtitle of this message is The Lawful Use of the Law. The Lawful Use of the Law. Now when I speak of law, I mean law of God. People go to hell not because of lack of purpose. People go to hell not because there's a God-shaped void in their life and Jesus is the, is the one who fills it. God's not a trite God like that. He's not, he's not, he doesn't exist to meet our felt needs. While the, while the gospel and, the salva and salvation is for you and I, it's not about you and I. The gospel is for you and I, but it's not about you and I. It's about the glory of God. And the lengths that a just God would go to purchase, reach, redeem, and make holy people who are anything but holy. And you can't understand that unless you understand this. So, forgive me, because most of you, many of you might think this is heresy. We're going to turn, we're going to turn this around for just a moment. And we're not going to go there right now. We're going to go to the starting point of the gospel. And the starting point of the gospel is not the cross. It is the fact that God's just. That's where it starts. Now, here's where we go. We're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Now, the way the Bible is written, and the way the Bible, I believe, should be studied and taught, is this. And you remember, do you, all, do you guys remember the three the three-pronged outline that we've talked about time and again of how the Bible should be studied and taught? And also how it's written. Does anybody remember that? What's illustration? Or what's first? Revelation. Okay, then illustration and then application. Look what it reveals. Look how it's illustrated in characters in the Bible and also in your own life perhaps or maybe the life of somebody you know. And then let's see how it applies to us. Now, the revelation this morning that we're going to pivot from is going to be 1 Timothy 1, 8-11. So you'll turn with me over there if you will. 1 Timothy 1, 8-11. And then as we go over there, and before we dive into it, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Jesus, please take your word that you wrote, empowered by your Holy Spirit, written through the Holy Spirit, to testify of you, and use us today as a conduit through whom it flows. Help us not to add to anything that you intend to say, and certainly not take away from anything. I'm totally dependent on you. Our opinions do not matter. Our, our, our uh, perspectives do not matter. Only the truth matters. And may you preach truth here this morning, straight from your word, for your glory. Not so that we're informed, but so that we're transformed. In the sweet name of Jesus we pray. Amen. There's so much controversy that goes on in the Christian circles and Christian faith about the, the, the what do we do with this thing called the law? What do we do with the law? And, and so much, I mean, denominations arise and fall and exists because of misinterpretations and misunderstandings about the purpose and nature of the law of God. Now, we're going we're gonna to have a, we're going to look at a simple couple of passages here to see it this morning. What is the purpose of the law? What is the lawful use of the law? And what is the unlawful use of the law? Now, let's follow me right here, okay? But, verse 8, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Implication, you can take the law of God and use it unlawfully. Does that not apply that? 
If the law, the law is good if it's handled properly. That's what we're talking about here this morning. The law is good if it's used lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of our blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now, let's look at the first, the audience to whom the law is directed. The law, now don't throw anything at me or get mad at me or send me a nasty email. You, you, you care enough to come to me individually and let's talk about it. If you think this is heresy or we think we need to correct this and I will. The law is not for saved people. That's not my opinion. The law is not for saved people. Now look at it. The, the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, insubordinate, ungodly sinners, the unholy and profane. And it goes on to list a laundry list of sin. The moment you repented of your sins and put faith in Jesus Christ, you are declared holy. Uh, now, that, that's not something that's yet to be done. That's not going to happen in the sweet by and by. That's a reality in the nasty now and now. The very moment that you repented of your sins, positionally speaking, you're as righteous in the mind of God as you'll ever be. You have been declared holy. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, that's positional truth. The practical reality is there's a distance between what's positionally true of me and how I behave. I don't always behave holy. I don't always behave righteous. But let's don't get the two mixed up. We have positional truth that I am and you are as believers righteous. We are called holy. And the big white Bible word for that is impute. It means credited to the account of. What it means is, is the moment that the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, that God's just, and you repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ and He alone for your salvation. Righteousness is imputed to you. That word impute just simply means it's credited to your spiritual bankrupt account. I had nothing. I was overdrawn. And, and my, my spiritual bank was Non-existent. I had an account, but it was empty. And the moment I got saved, I got credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm going to run around the building. We are to do it. We are to be, man, they are to do something to our worship this morning. Did you hear that? The very moment that you believed, not the moment that you achieved, not the moment that you went out and did something, the moment a vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus justification he receives the, 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 the song says in the original pardon it's way beyond that pardon people are let off from what they did we're treated by God as if we've never sinned hallelujah 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 amen if that doesn't do something to you your wood is wet alright and then the Lord goes on and he says okay here's the deal Basically, what he does in this narrative is say this. 
The law is used not in sanctification, in growing a Christian. The law is to be used in evangelism to evangelize the lost. It is for unrighteous people. What does that mean? It means that people who have not yet repented of their sins have put their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means. Now let's walk it down the line here. Lawless and subordinate. Another way of saying, a violate, violators of God's first command. The Ten Commandments are in this passage. God's first command, what is it? You worship God and that's it. Period. Paraphrasing, John. You worship God, that's it. You, everything is to be afforded to Him. Lawless and insubordinate people don't do that. Okay? Violation of the second command. Ungodly and sinners. That's idolatry. Don't make anything that even looks like me. And don't afford any kind of worship. That's what ungodly sinners do. That's the, that's the violation of the second command. When it says unholy and profane, that's violation of what? Command number three. You don't take the Lord's name in vain. You don't profane the Lord's name. You don't irreverently refer to the Lord or irreverently live in a way that mars the testimony of God as your Creator. And then when it says, look, it says murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. That's a violation of commandment number five. Because commandment number five says in Exodus 20, 20 12, it says honor your father and your mother. Then it moves on next to manslayers. Guess what that one is? That's a violation of commandment number six. You shall not murder. Exodus 20, verse 13. Then it says, for fornicators or for sodomites. That's a violation of the seventh command. You shall not commit adultery. And that's Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Then it says, for kidnappers. The theft of children was commonplace at the time that this was written, just like it is now. Just like it is now. Trafficking in child trade was common when this was written. So what that really means is theft. And that's a violation of commandment number 8. You shall not steal. Exodus 20.15 Then he goes on and says, For liars and for perjurers. That's the violation of commandment number 9. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Exodus 20 verse 16. Now, watch this one. He rounds it out. And he says, And any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Do you know why people peddle unsound doctrine? What's the signature sin that's true of people who peddle unsound doctrine? Pride and motivated by covetousness. It's covetousness. That's number 10. Thou shalt not covet. See, a false teacher covets money. The only reason anybody teaches false doctrine is two things. First of all, they're almost always highly immoral as far as their morality is concerned. And secondly, and probably more importantly, and more prominently, they're in it for the money. And if they're not in it just for the money, they're certainly in it for recognition and approval. That They're the look to. I'm apostle so-and-so. I'm psalmist so-and-so. You know, I'm this, that. I'm bishop so-and-so. You know, and I'm, I'm not... That word bishop and pastor and, and overseer are used interchangeably in the Scriptures to refer to the same person. But they ratchet up bishop to make it sound like that I'm a go-to. 
What's that? What is that but the sin of covetousness? That's all it is. So we've got nine of the ten commandments here listed not as commandments themselves, but listed and labeled as those who would violate them. If you commit murder, you are a murderer. Okay, so therefore he's saying murderous and he uses what you are, but the, but the, the bed of it, the basis of everything he says in that, in that narrative is nine of the Ten Commandments. Only one missing, which one? Sabbath day. On purpose, obviously. The only commandment of the ten that's not repeated in the New Testament is the Sabbath day commandment number four because the Sabbath refers to Jesus. Alright, so in witnessing the Gospel, in witnessing the Gospel, the ten command or the, the commandment and the law of God needs to be shared with someone so that they understand where they stand with God and they understand with brokenness and contrition, I have violated God's word. I've just owned up to go and you and here's what you do. You just get out the you just get out the Ten Commandments and say, Let's read them together. You got a Bible? Get out the Ten Commandments and say, Okay, let me ask you a question. The Bible says to worship God and God alone, no, nobody, no, no, nobody else. You worship God and God alone all your life? Well, if they're honest with you, what are they going to say? If they hold to it, quit. Just go somewhere else. They don't have ears to hear. I'm not cutting up. There's no sense of going over here. There's no sense of jumping to here unless they, they, it's established that they're a sinner. And so here's what we do. Okay, next thing, next thing. You ever, you ever, have you ever worshipped something above God, like your car? Or maybe uh, a relationship? Maybe you've wanted to date somebody so badly that that relationship became an idol for you? Well, alright. You know, okay. Then to walk it right down the line. Have you ever, have you ever uh, dishonored your mother and father? Oh no, I respect my mother and father. Your whole life, not one time in your life, have you ever done anything overtly or covertly in disobedience and dishonor to your mother and father? Well, uh, well, if you put it that way. And then you go to uh, adultery. Ever committed? Oh, no. Hey, I'm safe there. I'm safe there. Well, let's see how Jesus defines adultery. Let's go look and see how the, the, the Lord who wrote this defines adultery. And how does He define it? If you have lust in your heart, and you don't have to commit the act to commit it, just have lust in your heart with somebody, not your wife or your husband, and you've committed adultery. Well, everybody's done that. Well, when I'm witnessing somebody, I own up to it. I say, you know what? I have to. I'm not proud of it, but I've done that. Okay? All right, then we go to uh, theft. Ever stolen anything? Well, let's tease that out. I mean, let's really look at that. I'm sorry, I skipped murder. You should not murder. There we go again. Everybody's going to say, ha, ha, ha. Not unless you're at the jail. You're talking to somebody who's been convicted of it. They're going, oh, no, I never killed anybody. Well, here again, let's see what Jesus says about that. If you're angry with somebody without a cause, and you're so much so angry at them, you really would like for them not to exist. You've murdered them. You ever done that? Well, if you put it that way, You ever stolen anything? No, sir. No. You ever stolen time from your employer? You ever clocked in at 8.20 when you really put down that you were got there at 8? I mean, you never lied about anything? You never stole a pencil from your office? You ever stole a paper clip? I mean, you've you never done anything like that? You ever, you ever cheated on your income taxes? Anything like that? You ever defrauded anybody? You ever got back too much change and didn't go back and make it right? I mean, walk it down. Well, if you put it that way, well, okay. Lie and perjury. You probably usually don't ever get any objection here. 
Ever lied? Huh. This not not bear false witness. You ever coveted something and wanted something so badly that you almost got resentful of somebody who might else have it? You ever pulled up to a red light and saw a car you'd like to have and you almost get mad at the guy who's got it because you'd like to have it? And walk that down. And then after you get finished, you say, okay, here's, what you, here's, here's the deal. It's a court case. It is a tribunal. And it's not to determine guilt. And the person you're talking to is not to establish guilt. It's not even to, uh, it's not an arraignment. It is not to, it's not even to treat them as the accused. It's not even to treat them as a defendant. It is a tribunal to establish guilt. It is a tribunal to show that you are currently condemned. Jesus said this in John chapter 3. I didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Why? Did, why? Because it was condemned already. It's already been done. I came to save, but I didn't come to condemn because you were already condemned. You were born into sin. You know what we normally do when we present the gospel? We quote Romans 3.23 and say, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You're a sinner. And, and somebody goes, well, okay. And they keep chewing their chewing gum. There's no contrition. There's no nothing. You call it false sin and fall short of the glory of God. What does fall short of the glory of God mean? What does the glory of God mean to a lost person? What does fall short mean? Are you, are you saying that I, I shouldn't, I'm not as tall as I ought to be? I mean, what, is it, what do those words mean? No, we have to drive it home using the law. That's the proper use of the law. Because the law establishes God's righteous standard and the condemned are shown to be condemned and they're condemned through the law of God. And by the time you get through with that, here's the deal, okay? You're going to stand one day in front of judgment, in front of a holy God, and He's going to, he's going to render a verdict. Now, while the windows of heaven are open and there are opportunities, right now, as it stands, as a result of what we've just read from the Scriptures, what's the verdict? Is it guilt or innocence? You just admitted you're an idolater, you're a, an adulterer, you're a profane person, you're a thief, you have dishonored your mother and father, you're a murderer, you've lied and cheated and steal, stolen all your life, and you're a covetous man. Is God going to let you into heaven if God has any kind of just character or nature at all? And the answer is absolutely not. You know why we coy away from that? Because we'd rather walk away from an encounter with people thinking more of us than they think of Jesus. We coy away from that. We apologize for His character and nature. But God doesn't apologize for it. Because that's who God is. Did you know the Bible says in Psalm 7, 11, that God is angry with the wicked every day. Do you know what the literal translation of that is? If you tease out the words from which that's lifted... God is foaming at the mouth, angry with the wicked every day. That's what that means. Oh, Brother Lindsay, we just think about the love. Yes, 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 He's gracious and merciful. Yes, He is. But none of that graciousness and none of that mercy means anything unless you understand that He's just. That's the proper use of the law. Time we quit apologizing for it. Time we quit playing around with it and dancing around the issue. Time we quit trying to appease the guilty conscience of somebody God's working on. Get out of the way and let 
them feel bad. That's called conviction. You can't get saved at first unless you're convicted. Where are you? Remember? When God asked Adam, where are you? That's the answer to the question. Adam, where are you? Is that because God was looking for Adam frantically trying to find him? Did he ask that question for God's benefit or did he ask that question for Adam's benefit? So we tell people, they never, we, we tell people how to be saved and they've not even asked how to be saved because they don't yet know they're lost. The law is for the unrighteous. The law is for a lost man. The law is for a sinner. You walk it down. And it's not God's Word that calls... It's not you that calls them that. It's God's Word that calls them that. I'm not the one that calls them a murderer. God's Word calls them a murderer. I'm not the one that calls them a thief. God's Word causes them a thief. We come away with it from witnessing encounters when we do witness and we apologize for the character and nature of God. So we round off the message around its edges... I love the word. Anybody ever see? Have y'all seen Courageous? I've seen it three times. I highly recommend that movie. That's a great movie. I went with Jill to go see it. Then I went to Andrew to go see it. And then Pastor Bruce and I went to go see it the other day. And there's a part in there where the guy's trying to witness. One of the Christians is witnessing to a fellow deputy in the movie. You remember the part? And they're out there cleaning their guns and they're on the range. And this guy who's lost is talking about the fact that he had a daughter out of wedlock. And this guy's lost now. Okay. Lost people act lost. Okay. All right. And so, so, um, he says, he said, well, you know what? He said, uh, I, I, I did this and I was going to pay for to get it fixed, get things fixed. If you know what I mean by that. And she didn't want to have things fixed. And so she had the baby and now they live not very far from here. And I have nothing to do with the child. And I feel bad about it because I see how guys selfish decisions every day affect other people. And I'm tired of feeling guilty about it. I love what the guy responded. Do you know what the guy said to him? He walked over there, sat by him, Trevor, and just was cleaning his gun. He said, you are guilty. You are guilty. It's exactly the right thing to say. Feel bad. Good. Feel bad. You should feel bad. You know why? Because you're guilty and God's holy. And as things are right now, you are dangling over God's judgment in hell. You have thus far in your life trampled under feet the blood of Jesus Christ and treated it as a common thing and you've insulted the Spirit of grace. And if you die unrepentant where you are, you will go straight to hell for eternity. That is because God's just. Sin will not get into heaven. It will not. Because God's just. We establish that through the law. That's how God uses it. Now there's the revelation. Let's look at how it's illustrated. Follow with me and stay with me. Let's go look at the illustration. Our Savior Himself did this. Watch. Just stay with me for just a second. We're going to see how it's illustrated. Luke, Luke chapter 18 Luke chapter 18, and we're going to see the story of the rich young ruler. Luke chapter 18. You've heard this story time and again all your life. <clears throat> Let's look at how the God, the, the Savior Himself, illustrated this truth. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. <clears throat> Are you there? Now a certain ruler asked Him, now he's asking Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Watch this. First of all, 
As far as he was concerned, Jesus was just a teacher. He was on the scene to teach religious truth, and his teaching thus far seemed to be radical, but credible. And he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you know what? First of all, what must I do? Is there anything that you can do to inherit eternal life? No, absolutely not. Now listen, we've got the cross covered up here now. Watch where we're at in the narrative. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, normally we'd say, well, brother, or you're not brother yet, but hey, friend, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's not of works that you're saved. It's the salvation. It's by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. Is that what Jesus said to him? You know what his response was? Watch what, look, look, look. First, let me just say this too. What should I do to inherit? Inherit. You know what the word inherit means? It means what should I do to get what's rightfully mine? What should I do to get what's coming to me? In, in other words, I deserve an inheritance in heaven. If you just give me the keys to that inheritance and tell me where the will is going to be probated because I know that I deserve it. I deserve to go to heaven because after all, I've been better or as good as Brian Fox. He lives one street over from me. I watch his life. I'm as good as or better than Brian Fox. Jesus, the one who died for him on the cross, says to him, listen, listen to this response. He says to him, repent and believe on me and trust in the cross that I'm about to die on and thou shalt be saved. Is that what he said? See, we're not over here yet. We're not over here yet. Watch. We're still here. He said, he said hey, why do you call me good? If I'm just a teacher and you've reduced me to that status, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. He said, listen, buddy, no one's just and righteous but God. You See, it starts with the character and nature of God. And the character and nature of God exposes the fallen nature of man. Not the other way around. And so what does he say? Well, this is going to violate everything that you've learned in Sunday school. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And if you answered that question and said, well, here's the Ten Commandments. Here's what you're supposed to do. Okay, here we go. This is it. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. And honor your mother and father. Okay? Do not commit adultery is a violation of the seventh commandment. That's the seventh commandment. Do not murder is the sixth commandment. Do not steal is the eighth commandment. Do not bear false witness is the ninth commandment. And honor your father and mother is the fifth commandment. Is that how you go to heaven? Is that how somebody goes to heaven? By obeying the Ten Commandments. Well, why didn't Jesus say that to him? He's trying to communicate to him in a tribunal setting. You are condemned. And, and look at the arrogant response. Look at the arrogance, the height of arrogance. And he said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. Just, just out of curiosity, does anybody in here believe that he has kept all those commandments since his youth? Any takers on that? Does anybody in here believe that he's kept one of them? And let me tell you this. The Bible says that all things are naked and laid bare in front of the one to whom we must give an account. 
And the Bible says that God is the revealer of secrets. The Bible says that God's judgment is going to be according to the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Which means that God not only knows when we sin, overtly, He knows when we violate our own conscience. In our thinking. Jesus knows every thought, every secret, every motive. He's not just reduced to knowing action. He knows motive. He could have said, let me tell you this. So far in your life, you have dishonored your mother and father 485,347 times. So far, you have committed murder 1,200,364 times in 178. And this morning, you'll probably do it again in 179. And I can tell you, you'll do it three times tomorrow. You've committed adultery in your heart against your wife 1,341,271 times and I've seen every last one of them. He could have listed them just like that. I've kept all these since my youth. Well, let's, okay, let's tease that out for a little bit. When you were seven and your mother told you to get your hand out of the cookie jar, you didn't. And you were like that right there. Violated. No, no, Martin. He could have gone and walked in line. He didn't do that. Look what he said. He conceded that. Look what he said. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. Lie. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still like one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Can I ask you a question? Does anybody saved by selling all their treasures and giving it to the poor and following Jesus? Is anybody saved by keeping the Ten Commandments? Is it possible to keep the Ten Commandments? Well, why in the world did Jesus have this strategy with him? Because he was talking to an unbroken, unrepentant man. And until this guy repents and comes into agreement that he's lost and undone, and there was no brokenness, there was nothing but arrogance. And, curiously enough, of the, of the, you know, the first four commandments are horizontal. Y'all remember that? That's in our relationship with God. Commandments uh, 5 through 10 are vertical. Our relationship with one another, right? And of course, that's a picture of what? It's a picture of the cross. And you got Jesus right in the middle, and that's Sabbath. That's number four. Okay, watch this. He quotes one, two, three, four, five. He quotes five of the horizontal commandments to him, and he curiously enough leaves one out. Does anybody care to look in there and see which one it is? Huh? What is it? Thou shalt not covet. Okay, watch this, watch this. He, instead of saying, thou shalt not covet, he expressed it this way. Sell everything you got, give it to the poor, and come follow me. What was he trying to expose to him? He was trying to expose to him that he has a covetous heart. What would have been the outcome? What would have been the outcome? See, we're still over here. We've, gotten, we've, 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 got, we've not traveled over here yet. We've not gone over here yet. You don't hear anything about what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be rescued? What must I do to inherit what i got coming? What's rightfully mine? A place in heaven. Let me tell you. Let's just, let's just mess with the narrative just a little bit. What if it had been, Oh, God! Rescue me. I am a covetous man. I see it. I see it. My heart is full of covetousness. I've amassed this fortune by extorting and exploiting other people. You nailed it, Jesus. Woe is me. I'm a wicked man. What do you think the Lord would say to him? Scram. i got no use for you. 
What do you think you just said to him? You're right where I want you. Now. He's repentant. And then Jesus says, Put faith in me. Put faith in me. But look what happened. This is a sad narrative. We don't know what happened after this, whether he'll be in heaven or not. But for right now, look what it says. What was his response? Rather than getting on his knees in contrition, he said, But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful. Why? Because he was very rich. Now, I love that we have the parallel accounts in the Scriptures because I've heard pastors preach on hell and act like the very few that do preach on the judgment of God and on hell preach on it in such a way that they seem to enjoy the fact that people are going there. Have you ever noticed that? We should preach on the judgment of God and on hell with a broken heart. We should preach it with love, but truthfulness. We should preach it with contrition ourselves because of the fact that, you know, the Bible says that God has no pleasure in the death of the ungodly. Did you know it says that? But God will punish the ungodly. He will. He's going to do it. He's going to, listen, a judgment for the repentant, it's all mercy. For the unrepentant, it's all judgment. Period. End of subject. So, he says, okay, establish the justice, and that is a call for what? Repentance. If, and the guy wasn't repentant. So, what does he do? But I, want, I love the parallel accounts here, because I want you to go look at this. And would you please just turn there? Look at Romans, I mean, Mark, chapter 10, verse 21. This is Mark's account of the same story. Because I don't want you to miss this. Chad's talking about talking to his friend, and he said she gave a shaky answer about her confidence that she's going to heaven. Probably because she's not. And he's asking for opportunities. And I'm praying for you specifically for that, Chad. I so appreciate that testimony. For God to open up opportunities for you to bear witness to the gospel. Because if somebody has a shaky testimony of why they're confident they're going to heaven, they're probably not. Okay, now watch this. We might find out different, but they're probably not. But Luke and Ch look, at, look, at, look at Mark chapter 10. Is that what I asked you to do? Yeah, I'm sorry. Mark chapter 10. Same story, different account here, same story, and look what he says. Look what he says here, Trevor. It says, for, um, <clears throat> let me find it. I'm on the wrong page. Yeah, 17 is where the story starts. Thank you, Lynn. Now, as he was going out on the road one morning, one came running and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher. Okay, and the same narrative is taking place, right? You see it? Look at that verse right there. You see what it says right there? In verse 21, sideways. Then Jesus, looking at him, what does it say? Loved him. It says he loved him. You know how much he loved him? You know how much he loved him? He loved him enough to tell him the truth. That's how much he loved him. Let me ask you a question. Do you love others and do I love others enough to tell them the truth? Or are we going to continue to be apologetic for the gospel? The Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before men and confessing me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. It doesn't mean that your lack of shame garners heaven for you. It just means that your lack of shame gives evidence to the fact that you're headed there. 
then maybe the shame could give evidence to the fact that you're not. Application? Galatians 3.21. Do you see what we've done to the gospel? you see what we've done to it? Galatians 3.21. Here's the application. Who is the law for? Huh? The unsaved. Is the law for a Christian? It's not. The law is not for a Christian. Now that's where you're going to get cards and letters. This is where the emails are going to come. The law is not for the Christian. The law is not for the Christian. We are not under law. We're under grace. If you don't like that, you'll have to take it up with Paul. And if you don't like Paul, you have to take it up with Jesus because Jesus is the one who told him to write it. But look what he said. This is just one among many. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given that could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Remember we talked about it? I'm going to preach a sermon, Kelly, one time about this, and here it is. The subject is going to be this. Something God can't do. You know what God can't do? God can't make a law that will make you and I right with Him. God cannot make a law that will make you and I not right, right with Him. Now watch this. Look. He said this. Why would I go to the expense of expending my son if righteousness were another way to set faith in Him? And isn't that kind of the way we present the Gospel? Well, you can come this way, Calvary's Road, or try hard. Or maybe ask God to forgive you in kind of a superficial way. Trust Jesus. Slap His name onto your life. He'll forgive you. Everything's fine. And you can float to heaven on a bed of ease, comfort, and pleasure. And, you know, and, and, and that's kind of the way we treat it. Some, some down, we downsize the cross when we don't highlight His justice. That's why we become enemies of it. But the Scripture, verse 22, has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who achieve. might be given to those who believe. But before faith, <clears throat> we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith that would afterwards be revealed. There was a guard at the prison forged by my sin. And that guard that kept me in bondage was the law. It condemned me. It was the basis upon which I, the accusations leveled against me were absolutely true. They were true. And we come into agreement with that. That's called repentance. And then we believe, not achieve. We put faith in Jesus Christ and then we're saved. And here we go. So that's the gospel message. It is repentance toward God and faith toward Jesus Christ. Repentance because God's just and faith because He's a Savior. And then watch this. Watch this. It says, Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Who is the tutor in that narrative? The law. We're no longer, uh, longer under law. Can you watch this with me for just a second and stay with me? Watch this. The law can chase you to Calvary and no further. That's it. It's done all it can do to you. The law is a mirror that God holds up. And I look at the, and I look at the blemishes in my face and the spots that I couldn't see any other way. And I go, my goodness, alive. I've got blemishes and spots and ugly spots and cancer all over my face. I don't go get the law and wash my face with the mirror. I go get a rag and some soap for that. But we, you know what we do? We take the law and we go to washing. 
You know, and we take the mirror and we try to take the law and clean us up. It can't do it. It can't do it. If there were a law that could make somebody righteous, God would have given it. And it would have saved him from having to send his son. The law is a mirror. It is a tutor. By God's word, at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. Till my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. That's it. Let me tell you, because of our superficial preaching, and because of our superficial confession, and because of our superficial witness, or lack thereof, this is what we wind up doing. We don't preach the law up front. And then somebody gets in, and they get labeled a Christian. And then they live in defeat, and they live in just utter confusion. And you know what we do? We go, aha! Let's go get the law. And put it over here. Oh, there's the problem. There's the problem. They got in and now we got to come some rules. Because they're not acting like they ought to act. So therefore, we need a rule. Find me a rule. i got to have a rule. Give me a rule. Give me a rule. You know why? Because a code is easier to observe than to lie down in a casket. The Gospel is not about a code. It's about a Savior. It's about being connected with Him relationally. Thereby changed in identity. And when you're changed about who you are, you change about how you act. And because of the way we preach the Gospel, we slap the glow on the other side. And we have converts and we make them twice the son of hell they already were because we weren't honest with them up front. Shame on us. If I love you, if I love you, I do not need a law to encourage me not to harm you. If I love you, I do not need a law that says don't lie to you. If I love you, I do not need a law that says don't lust after your wife. If I love you, I do not need a law that says don't steal from you. If I love my mother and father, I do not need a law that tells me to honor them. The new birth takes care of every bit of that. If we preach the Gospel right up front, we don't have to make these godless accommodations. That is a misuse of the law. That is the unlawful use of the law. That's it right there. Shame on us. Shame on us. Shame on us. Let's quit it right now. Let's quit it right now. And I've got another thing to tell you. And then we'll close. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. Look at the rest of the narrative. What was Jesus' response? after he went away sorrowful. What did he do? He let him go. He let him go. He didn't chase him down and say, well, let me put it to you another way. Let me fix what you just heard. If I can just modify it a little bit, maybe you'll believe. Let me tell you something right now. You're talking to somebody and they're unrepentant. I talked to that, when I talked to that guy the other day at, uh, at uh, Lowe's, and he went on up to the fact that he was guilty, I didn't say one word about the cross and not one word about Jesus because he would have said, oh, uh, uh, well, oh, the cross and Jesus, sure. Oh, yeah, I believe them, all them, and them the apostles and all those people, sure. Oh, 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 oh. But he never was broken over his sin. Never owned up to it. That's what Jesus did with this encounter. He stopped there and he let him go. Because you know what? More probable that he would repent 
from having let go than to make a false conversion when he stayed.